Welcome to Season 7 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a fascinating journey into the lives of top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories many you've never heard before. I'm your host, George Hoffman, and please follow this podcast through our new partnership with Last Word on Sports. Just go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcast. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is proudly presented by Mr. Duct, Chicagoland's premier comprehensive air duct cleaning and ventilation for residential and commercial properties. They're upfront and honest. Find them on the web at mrductcleaning.com. This week, we feature the multi-talented voice of the Chicago White Sox and others, Jason Benetti. You know, I'm 39 and I feel sometimes like this is it, right? Like not, not that I won't do better, different, whatever type of games, but I have been so fortunate to run into so many good people who have helped craft what this is and the opportunities that I've gotten. And I, uh, I'm just, I always get skittish when it sounds like, uh, you know, he's going to do what he's doing for the next 50 years. Jason Benetti's meteoric rise to success is no accident. His talent, tireless work ethic, and great sense of humor has allowed him to blend in with whoever he works with. But here in Chicago, he's been the perfect match or even foil for longtime analyst Steve Stone, a product of Syracuse University's prestigious Newhouse School of Public Communications. Benetti has fashioned a rather busy career. While afflicted with cerebral palsy, it hasn't hindered his motivation to be the best he can be. But did you know he also has a law degree? So. Jason Bonetti, tell me a story I don't know. Uh, George, I wanted to make sure that this is a story that uh, I've never told before to anybody and I haven't actually thought of for years and something triggered it in my mind a couple of months ago. And when you asked me for a story that you don't know, uh, I think this fits. So, you know, I, I got to do games at ESPN starting about 11 years ago. And my first real TV experience was on Time Warner Cable in Syracuse. Um, But the first time I was in front of a camera, we, in the early 90s, at the Churchill Elementary School in Homewood, uh, one of the class projects that we had to do, and I must have been eight or nine years old, was we went to the Cablevision studio. There was an old Cablevision studio behind like a Fannie Mae off a ridge road in in homewood and we had to create like a piece of programming it could be anything and this was right around i mean i'm eight or nine i don't remember exactly how old but i was still in elementary school and this was right around the time that dan quayle had gone into that elementary school himself or middle school and misspelled potato (laughs) yes (laughs) a kid a kid wrote potato (laughs) on the blackboard and dan quayle added an e to the end of potato to correct the kid and add add one little bit on the end just think of potato how's it so you write phonetically there you go and dan quayle basically his political career never survived it (laughs) and so the class project that i decided to do i was a big 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 saturday night live fan as a kid And I decided to do a commercial parody entitled Dan Quayle's Vice Presidential Alphabets. (laughs) 
And the tagline was, even you can spell potato. <laughs> How did that go over? You know, I think I got an A. I mean, who's gonna give who's gonna give a nine-year-old that did a commercial parody a la Phil Hartman or somebody a B minus, right? I don't know how the delivery was. I have no idea if the video exists on Betamax somewhere or whatever. I haven't seen it in years, but um, it, like forever. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what ended up happening to it, but I guess it was good. I mean, I don't know. I like to think besides the fact that you have a great sense of humor, you're a wise guy. So were you a wise guy coming out of the womb? Uh, no, I was a really quiet kid. I mean, I was a very, very quiet kid. I kept to myself. I was like that kid who, when there was a multiple choice test, would go up to the teacher's desk. This is to no surprise of anybody. Go up to the teacher's desk and be like, oh, is this a typo or do you mean actually this? Okay. Right. So like I, I was a good student, probably uh, too polite sometimes. Like there was really no edge, except I would go home and my parents and I would watch like Robin Williams and George mm. Carlin. Canadian money is also called the loony. How can you take an economic crisis seriously? <laughs> the loony is down. Oh, how sad for you. Best thing about this war, it's on every channel. And every channel has a slightly different war. Do you notice that? If you don't like the way it's going on channel two, try channel nine. Maybe your side is winning over there and Dennis Miller and Dennis Leary. And I remember a friend of mine brought over the Adam Sandler CD that had the skit Tollbooth Willie, which was pretty vulgar. Hey, hey, Willie, how's it going? Hey, can't complain, pal. How's by you? Oh, great, great. How much? The state charge is a dollar twenty-five, pal. That's fine. Now, should I give you the money or should I shove the quarters directly up your uh, and I remember getting yelled at for listening to the Adam Sandler CD. So like I was a pretty quiet kid, played video games, kind of kept to myself. But I always uh, appreciated really good comedians. Well, this is one thing that we have in common, and that is Saturday Night Live, which, by the way, I don't watch now. And George Carlin. I mean, I when I was in college at Southern Illinois University, that's when Saturday Night Live debuted in 1975. And there would be Saturday parties that would stop. There'd be a lot of people at these parties. They would stop for an hour and a half so that we can watch Saturday Night Live, which was sensational. As for George Carlin, I consider him my favorite comedian. He's a genius. I've seen him twice in the past. And he was so ahead of his time. But when you would watch the HBO specials, I'd have to put them on pause because I was crying in laughter. I did not have the same experience of SNL starting, but I did have the same experience with Carlin. I never got to see him. I was too young. I mean, my parents went to go see him. I want to say at like the Star Theater or something like that. But <laughs> pardon me, I was too young to go. Mm -hmm. And so I never got a chance to see him. But I... I, I got it. I, I think I memorized um, a couple of his CDs. I mean, he the bit that he has about, uh, you know, everybody says it's the quiet ones you got to watch. No, it's the effing loud ones that you have to watch. Right? <laughs> and he, his ability with the language, like I derived a lot of uh, joy and kind of inspiration from his ability to take a word and to take, uh, you know, the oxymoron bit that he does 
and and use it for fun and for joy. I he's such a genius. So this gets me to thinking at a young age, did you also memorize the seven words you can't say? <laughs> I mean, I don't know where I learned them, <laughs> but I learned them. I, you know, the the great part was my parents didn't really um I mean, the Adam Sandler thing aside, my parents didn't really care if I was listening to comedy, uh, especially once you get to a certain age that, you know, like I, I watched Blazing Saddles when I was probably too young, but oh I love Blazing Saddles. I love satire. I love anything that takes what the mind normally sees and twists it. So, yeah, I I don't know if I memorize the words, but they're part of my vocabulary. I can tell you, having seen that in the theater, the fart scene had people rolling in the aisles. I mean, literally people fell out of their seats. It's amazing. And and it's funny, if you ranked like the top 20 bits or lines in that movie, for people nowadays, it that wouldn't even maybe register, right? I mean, it's hysterical. Yes. But there are so many pieces of that that are so subtle and or so hit you over the head. Uh, it's <laughs> it's Br Mel Brooks. If there's one person living that I would really like to meet, Mel mm -hmm. Brooks is on the list of, of four or five. He is truly amazing. We mentioned in the open that you have a law degree. Was law school at Wake Forest more like a backup plan in case things didn't go right in the world of sports? You know, I it's it's funny. Uh, I talked to Dan Bernstein when I was thinking about going to law school because he has uh, attorneys in the family. I believe it was his dad. His dad was an attorney. Um, and Dan said that he didn't go to law school, as I recall, because he didn't want it to be a backup plan. And that that put it in my mind, like, if you're going to do this, it cannot be an excuse. It can't be, uh, well, the broadcasting thing didn't exactly work out. So I kind of hit law school as hard as I hit broadcasting. But when I was doing one and I was doing games at the same time, I was at a small school in North Carolina, uh, High Point University doing basketball. So when I was at the law school, I was doing law school. When I was at High Point, I was doing High Point uh, with the exception of when the chair was too low at the High Point basketball games and I would sit on my torts casebook because it was <laughs> uh, substantial uh -huh, and I am tiny. So no, I, it wasn't, I, I was actually, it's funny you use that terminology because I was very careful to not call it a backup plan because I didn't want to give myself any outs. I wanted both things to feel like they were the only thing going on in my life. And that has helped me tremendously in being able to juggle multiple things. I was not a very organized kid at all, but law school kind of taught me how to be somebody who can make sure that when he is somewhere, he is locked in on that thing. Well, it appears you've had a full plate for a long time. Yeah, I do need a vacation. <laughs> Don't we all? We when I was in AAA baseball, uh, about game six of a nine game homestand, I would go up to our groundskeeper. His name was John Stewart, or he would come up to me. And invariably, one of us would say to the other one, you look like hell, <laughs> uh, which was basically a signal like, yeah, homestand's coming to an end. 
so it was a it was a running gag for us. Uh, but I I do you know I appreciate what you said about my work ethic. I am not the only person doing a lot of games, but I will say I. I really do value sleep and I know when I don't get it. And I ran myself down quite a bit when I was in law school and doing games. Like I'd come back from a game and like come study for a couple hours at the school. And it's just not really tenable at some point. So uh, I I do value sleep. I, I just think law school helped me learn how to work smarter. When's the last time you had your air ducts cleaned? Here's the best solution, Mr. Duct, a name Chicagoland has trusted for over 20 years. They work on your furnaces, air conditioners, and do repairs, maintenance, and installations. In other words, they're your all-around company for air quality choice and more. Mr. Duct provides on-site commercial ventilation cleaning estimates. You'd be hard-pressed to find better. So give them a call at 888-4-MR-DUCT. That's 888-467-3828. And Mr. Duct is the right choice to clean your residential dryer vents. They do a full inspection to make sure your dryers are running properly. Mr. Duct works with schools, health facilities, and office buildings to make sure you're breathing clean air. Their testimonials are endless, and with good reason. So don't think twice when you're ready to work on air ducts, dry vents, and so much more. Just think Mr. Duct. Duct, 888-4-MR-DUCT. That's 888-467-3828. And find them on the web at mrductcleaning.com. You know, you are part of a very, very talented group of what I'd like to call the next generation of top play-by-play voices, including Joe Davis, uh, the lead voice on Fox Baseball, football, and replace the legendary Vin Scully. Schroeder flies it to center field. McCormick's going back. He's at the track. He's at the wall. Gone! Wow! Monstrous blast! There's Chris Vosters, who replaced the legendary Pat Foley with the Blackhawks. Ian Mitchell cuts it to the middle. Knocked down by Coyle. Radish scores! Lisa Byington, who's already done this podcast, who does the Milwaukee Bucks in Chicago Sky. She's wonderful. Bobby Lee came out And your friend Adam Amin, who is the voice of the Bulls in other Fox events. Bulls running. Kobe White to the rim! Kobe! Kobe, don't do him like that! Kobe White just sucked the gravity out of the building! I'm sure I'm missing a few, but that's quite a roster. It is, and I'm even heartened by the generation after that, the people that... uh, folks haven't heard of as much maybe around here. All the people you listed are fantastic and I am grateful to know them and to consider them friends and just really great young announcers. I I did five seasons of minor league baseball with uh, Kevin Brown, who is the voice of the Orioles now, Mm -hmm. uh, four seasons with him. He took over uh, for Gary Thorne with somebody in between. But I think Kevin is one of the great young talents in America. He does the Women's College World Series uh, for ESPN. He works over there doing football and college basketball. Uh, A young guy named Connor Onion who went to Ball State, who uh, for a brief time was my football spotter, is now doing games at ESPN and Big Ten Network. I believe he was at SIU, too. He was. He was. He was at SIU. Uh, Mike Monaco, who fills yes. in the Bulls, uh, filled in for me when I had the COVID with the White Sox. He is outstanding. I mean, like a really tremendous young announcer. So I, 
I am really heartened by the position the business is in. And I, I, I failed to mention Noah Eagle, uh, but Noah Eagle is the oh, no. son of one of the funniest people in America. And Noah is one of the funniest people in America and a tremendously talented announcer. And I just, I am really excited about what's next in this industry. And that's not to push other people out the door. I don't mean to do that. I just, I, I really care and love, uh, for this craft. And I just, it's very cool to see people who are taking it to another level at such a young age. Well, I'll always remember what Harry Carey would say. He would say, we are just actors on the stage. It's, it's almost Shakespearean, right? I mean, isn't it? It is. It is the plays, the thing, George. (laughs) I agree with that. Here's what I really admire most about you. You grew up wanting to be the voice of the White Sox. It reminds me of a couple of contemporaries of mine. First, Gary Cohn. I would visit Gary in New York and in Hanover, New Hampshire, when he got his first job. And he told me his dream then was to be the voice of the Mets. And now he's been that for over 30 years. And the same with Charlie Steiner, who was on this podcast and told the story of when he was a child, he would call Brooklyn Dodgers games from his living room in Brooklyn And 60 plus years later, he did the same thing, only it was the Los Angeles Dodgers during COVID. And it was for real. I love those stories. Yeah, it's um, I I do get concerned when we talk like that, though, because I I I love I love I love being the voice of the White Sox. But I do uh, cherish the Frazier episode where he's (laughs) working at a very high level at at his talk show. And he goes to this award show, the CBs in Seattle, and they give him the (laughs) Lifetime Achievement Award and he doesn't realize he's going to get it. Right. So I, you know, I'm 39 and I feel sometimes like this is it. Right. Like not not that I won't do better, different, whatever type of games, but I have been so fortunate to run into so many good people who have helped craft what this is and the opportunities that I've gotten. And I, uh, I'm just, I always get skittish when it sounds like, uh, you know, he's going to do what he's doing for the next 50 years. (laughs) I guess they did then who knows if they are going to like yourself do that now. So here's a tough question. Why are you so good at what you do? Oh, that is a tough question because beauty's <laughs> in the eye of the beholder. The, the value judgment on the work is the thing that some might dispute. Uh, here's why. Uh, I was really, really lucky to be a part of a high school that had a great radio station. And then I went to a college that had a great radio station. And when I say great, uh, you know, flamethrower or not, I mean, you could you could hear WHFH in a couple of suburbs and you could hear WAER around the Syracuse area, but those two places, you couldn't just go and show up and rip copy off the computer and read it on the air. Although we did sometimes when we were too busy eating candy bars and just BSing in the (laughs) green room at WHFH. And we tried to pass it off as our own work, but they are places that motivate and they are places that cultivate good work habits and, the belief that there is a craft in this and the belief that uh, there is something beyond just the basic, that storytelling matters and that every time you go into a studio or put on a headset is a chance to get better at something specific. 
And if there is one reason why people would call me good, great, whatever adjective you care to use, it is because I have adopted, thanks to those two places, the idea that if you did something wrong in this game or something you don't like in this game, you better freaking change it next time at all costs, right? You don't like the open you did on Tuesday night? Well, Wednesday night, you better be really locked in and make sure that it's different materially somehow. And you pile up a hundred of those and a thousand of those and 2000 of those. I, I, I think that's where any version of good comes from. I, I was in a, a meeting with Bronco Mendenhall, the Virginia, erstwhile Virginia football coach who's no longer there. But uh, he's one of those guys that when we had their games, I used to ask what they're what he's reading, because I, I think Bronco's a really interesting guy. And, and he suggested to me a book called The Talent Code, uh, which had an associated book called like The Little Book of Talent. And it's a story, a number of stories about why talent hotbeds exist. Like the Brazilian soccer team was part of it. And this vocal mm -hmm. coach in Texas who's created pop stars. And I think, yes, your own individual ambition is terribly important. And the way you make your skill set is terribly important. But also being in a hotbed is really important, too. And so a lot of, you know, you can debate the pie chart of credit, right? Is it individual people, teachers, influences, whatever it might be? It's all of that. But I don't think it happens for me the way it has if I don't end up in two of those places. Well, I can think of two people who I've interviewed for this podcast that uh, were on those radio stations, I believe, that you were at at Syracuse. Their names happen to be Bob Costas and Marv Albert. And I know there are others who have graduated from that place that have gone on to do bigger and better things. When you stepped into the White Sox booth and you started to work with Stoney, it sounded as if you had become a breath of fresh air for him. And I remember Stoney telling me a similar experience when Harry died and was replaced by his grandson, Chip. So tell me a story I don't know. What is it like to work with Steve Stone? You know, I told you it's uh, that SNL was such a an influence for me. Uh-oh. Uh, and I don't mean this. I don't mean this in the hearty horror sort of way. Mm -hmm. I mean this in the yes and baseline truth of comedy, right? That uh, when you do improv, you build on what the person next to you is doing. And it doesn't even have to be comedy. I mean, people use like the tenets of improv comedy to work with people with dementia, according to an episode of This American Life that I heard like five years ago. That's a long way of saying it's like doing improv every night with somebody who has seen so much of the world for so many years and has such a keen eye for detail. He also has a keen eye for slight misspeaks for slight gaps in knowledge, not, not gaps in knowledge, but gaps in like phrasing of a sentence. And so Steve and I are both word parsers and we always hear that little gap to either ask a question or to needle a little bit or whatever it might be. That's the day-to-day -day of working with Steve is the joy of building something that I don't know that anybody, any other team because of you know individual personalities does it quite like that? I mean, there are a lot of people who do unique to the hilt telecasts. And that's the fun of all this is Gary, Keith and Ron can be great. And Joe Davis and Eric Karos can be great or oral or whoever is doing the games uh, with him or Jess Mendoza. 
all the broadcasts that are great can be great in their own right. And I just, I cherish what Steve and I have in the way our minds connect. That was Pikachu, who's a Pokemon. Have you heard of Pokemon? Heard of a Kinkachu? I don't, <laughs> Pikachu. Ha. No. Uh, so Pikachu was walking around and then Slugger picked up what's called a Pokeball, which is a ball that holds Pokemon. And then when you throw it, another one pops out. Now, that didn't happen here, and Pikachu is getting bludgeoned yeah, by Slugger. It looks like he is stomping on him, not content to use the Pokeball. And so that's the joy that comes out of the day-to-day, -day, along with the idea that he just knows the inches of baseball. I mean, watching him watch fielders move and him gathering and gleaning what you think is going to happen, what he thinks is going to happen on a play because of where a fielder went or because of a small detail that is imperceptible to the general fan. That combination of the way our minds work together and his knowledge of baseball is really a joy. You play off him so beautifully, especially with his sarcastic sense of humor. It really does sound like you were made for one another. Nobody outworks this guy. He is as professional as they come. He is relentless as far as his preparation for a game. Working with Jason has been uh, a wonderful thing for me to do. I love his mind. I really do. I mean, he, Steve Stone is a truly wonderful person, and I needle him all the time because I think he's a truly wonderful person, and he doesn't want anybody to know it, right? Like, <laughs> he plays the misanthrope, and he's critical when he needs to be critical and all that. But he is a really caring soul down deep, and he's had a lot of stuff happen in life, as we all have. But, man, I watching him the day we all in the White Sox did a great job, and Scott Reifert spearheaded it, um, the 40th anniversary of Steve's first game as a broadcaster, mm -hmm. watching him take that in and the emotion it stirred in him, it wasn't out of egotism. It was simply that... He has worked his tail off to be somebody who has thoughts that people care about. I mean, he was a middling pitcher for a while, and then he made himself into a breakout star. And then he did that on TV as well. And he can work with absolutely anybody. So I, I am always thinking about the moments that I've seen when that emotion comes out of Steve because I truly believe that's at the core of his humanity. It's surrounded by criticism and a high standard for what baseball should look like. And everybody has the warts of the erosion of life. But man, there's something in that heart that is unstoppably kind. And he just kind of, he surrounds it with a moat. Two stories I'll tell you quickly. One, when he was between jobs, he would take me out to dinner. He would say, hey, George, you want to meet me for breakfast? Same place. Take me out to dinner. And, you know, I, I would attempt to pay and he would take out a lot of cash and pay it because we were at Let Us Entertain You Places. I love that because the one thing about Steve is you don't have to talk. He'll do all the talking. You do all the listening. Now, another instance, which I will never forget, and I've told this story before. So it's a spring training game and we're sitting in a booth alone and suddenly he looks at me and he goes, you see the batter up at the plate? He's going to hit a double to right. And I'm looking at him going, what? Next pitch, the batter hits a double to right. I look at him 
and he's got a smirk on his face. So not only does he have a good heart, he's clairvoyant. I never believed in that stuff. And I'm using the past tense because I do now. There there have been times when he's done that in the booth. I mean, it's I, unbelievable. I, he'll write it down on a piece of paper, slide it over to me like we're <laughs> negotiating across a desk. I'll open it, right? Like I'm looking at pocket sevens and then the flop comes. <laughs> The flop comes and it's three more sevens. And you're like, wait a second, there aren't five of them. If you're looking to attend any of the upcoming matchups in the big dance, we want you to use our friends at Ticket Smarter and the Ticket Smarter mobile app. They've got the most competitive prices on the secondary market, and your purchase is 100% safe and guaranteed with Ticket Smarter's service commitment. Plus, they've got an offer to make it even better to use Ticket Smarter. Use their promo code HOOPS23 to take $10 off your order. That's HOOPS23 to save $10 with Ticket Smarter. And their code is good for as many times as you want to use it for games in March. The madness is upon us all the way through the title weekend in Houston, and we want you to think smarter, ticket smarter, and remember their code, HOOPS23. If you want to hear more guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, all you have to do is go to Last Word on Sports on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the many wonderful interviews we've done dating back to January of 2021. We return with Jason Benetti on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. So as we prepare to drop this podcast, Major League Baseball is getting used to some new changes some of them radical, and not the least of which, of course, Jason, is the pitch clock. So players have to be ready. Managers have to be ready. Umpires have to be ready. Fans have to be ready. So number one, what's your opinion on the pitch clock? And from what you've read and learned, some of the tweaks that might take place in the next week. It's phenomenal. Phenomenal is full stop. Phenomenal. Great for the game. Because if you go back and you watch games from when there were games televised in the 80s and 90s, the game was this pace. I mean, this is, this is not uh, completely new for Major League Baseball to have this sort of crisp tempo. It's just new for us to have bells and whistles on TV that are happening at the same time as the tempo. And we all got into that rhythm of it could be three and a half hours tonight. You know, you, you might as well start to tell some stories for when people are out of the batter's box or whatever it might be. I love it for baseball. And I think it's, it was a really smart way of going about it for Major League Baseball. You know, at first when MLB took over those minor league uh, franchises and the whole MILB, I was really crestfallen for those franchises that lost their affiliation because I know how hard people work in the minors and I still am. It's disappointing that they couldn't keep all the affiliates, but major league baseball having the training ground for the rules really led to this happening in MLB this year. And I think it's really good for the game. I think it's good for parents with kids going to games because it's hard to say we're going to stay for three hours and 45 minutes or three hours and 12 minutes or whatever it is. When you have a better inkling that the game is going to be two and a half to 250, I think you can more readily plan your night around that or day around that. So I think it's better for the game in general. Uh, the tweaks, you know, the, as we're recording this a couple of hours ago, 
this memo came out that went to Major League Baseball teams of slight changes or challenge rules for the shift or uh, pitch clock situations that are a little esoteric, but people wanted to know answers on. So I don't think Major League Baseball is going to change the the bulk of the rules in any way during the season. I think they want to make sure that they are stringent and hard line about the pitch clock because as people said at first, you know, the some of the scuttlebutt around people who weren't in the meetings when Major League Baseball came up with this was, well, they'll say they're going to enforce it and then it'll just be like the cylinder rule in college basketball or the block charge rule, you know, in November and December, they're going to do it. And then when you get to conference play, it won't happen. I think Major League Baseball is very loath to have that happen with these rules. So you're going to see them, I would imagine, for the year and, and beyond. But um, I do think the tweaks are going to be uh, situations that people didn't anticipate. That's just bound to happen, like the brushback pitches, right? If somebody's out of the batter's box, the umpire now has the purview to say, well, we're not going to we're not going to start the clock right away. And I think that's probably civil and smart and, and all that goes along with it. But I think it's great for baseball and I think it's great for fans. For some reason, I'm thinking of Mike Hargrove, the human rain delay, and seeing him try this and watching him cry in the batter's box. <laughs> <laughs> there, it's so funny. It's so funny. There was a guy, oh, man. I want to say his name was Chris Carter, who played for the Pawtucket Red Sox when I was in AAA. And every time the pitch got thrown, he would step out of the batter's box and go to the gloves. And it was like, it was a tick. Right. And it was the gloves. And I just wonder what people who had that tick are going to do. We need like um, nicotine gum for batters <laughs> who go to their gloves. Now we're thinking about how this is going to affect so many aspects of the game, but it's going to affect people like you and Steve Stone because suddenly there's going to be less time for what you do best talking. Well, we we also are good at not talking. Uh, we we have honed our not talking skills over the course of the winter. Steve's been joking on the air that he has been preparing uh, shorter stories uh, over the. He's been working on making his stories shorter over the winter. Excuse me for interrupting. That's impossible. I know. I know. But, but the one thing I would say is George, and you know, you know Steve even better than I do, and and he and I worked together for eight years. You've known him forever. Uh, Steve is so good at timing. So it's really not going to be a problem for him for inexperienced analysts. I think it's going to be harder. I mean, I just, I just did the NCAA tournament on radio with Robbie Hummel and he is prodigious. He's in his mid thirties and he sounds like he's been doing it for 25 years. He can go on radio and make very cogent points within 10 seconds and let the play-by-play -play announcer pick the game back up. And then he'll go on TV and be a little bit longer I don't think that's easy for everybody. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how analysts deal with it, how much more condensed stories are, um, where producers go and directors go late in game for drama, right? You used to have a chance at maybe six different camera cuts, right? Pitcher's face, batter's face, dugout, stands, other place in the stands, pitcher's face, camera four from center field. You're not going to have that same amount of time. So I think you're going to need to be more efficient. And really, you know, the selection process of camera shots is going to be highly interesting. I, I am very interested to watch dramatic late game stuff this year. 
One last thought, and it's on the other major rule change, and that's the elimination of the shift. I'm one of those guys who opposes that because I think any sport should not be penalized for defense. That strategy is strategy. The game has changed. The analytics are such. But I'm one of those guys who say, keep the shift. I remember the shift for Willie McCovey. That's like 55 years ago. Right. Right. I mean, it was happening for Ted Williams, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's absolutely true. Uh, I was with you, and I, I, I think I still am, that it's better to let the defenses play chess. But I do think when you take that away from general managers, you're basically saying we want the game to look a certain way general managers, field managers, whatever. You're, you're, you're re-incentivizing hitters to do certain things. And so if ground ball base hits have more value, even a little more value because they're more prevalent, maybe that takes a little bit away from the reliance on the home run. And maybe because the shift is gone, you see an increase in stolen base opportunities that's even beyond the disengagement pitcher rule. It's a little bit like, and I've been thinking about it in these terms because I think it's easy for me to see this way, and I don't know about our audience here, but if you sat down at a blackjack table and you were playing at Caesars for 45 minutes and they said, okay, now the dealer has to stay at 15. Immediately, you'd have a whole different set of decisions that you would make. Yeah. It wouldn't be, okay, well, dealer's got a five, I have a four, stay, right? You probably wouldn't wave that off anymore. You'd probably hit. And so it changes completely the calculus. And I, I like... The, the reason I like the shift thing even a little bit is because it changes the calculus, not for the actual effect of taking away the, the uh, you know, the safety for defenses of getting rid of that ground ball base hit in the hole on the right side to left-handers. I like what it does to the calculus, but I agree with you. I, I And I said it very much during games. I don't think it's going to disincentivize people from hitting home runs. I don't think batters are going to go seeking those ground balls. But I do, beyond that, think teams might see it as a potential way to not rely as much on the home run ball. I mentioned earlier, you seemingly work well with other analysts, and one in particular happens to be Bill Walton. I'm Bill, and this is my great friend, the true giant among us, a brilliant genius, one who's able to create beauty, beauty out of darkness. And your name? It's Jason Still. Okay, and so I'm Bill, and we're in California. When I talk about Bill Walton, I suddenly turn into Bill Walton. <laughs> I was talking to somebody about Bill the other day, and I referred to his mind as a bountiful harvest of something. And, and the person I was talking to goes, did you just turn into Bill? <laughs> what, what's happening? White Sox and Angels at the Diamond in the Park. I love timelessness. You're timeless. Well, the I've, one been, thing I've, I've been dead for quite a few years. And we all may be by the end of the night. You bring up the name Bill Walton to anybody who is even a passing friend. And I believe they will tell you that he is one of the kindest, most generous, loving souls that you'll ever be around. The world is truly better for having Bill Walton in it. And I... I I cannot tell you how happy I am that my life has intersected with his. And we don't talk all the time, but every once in a while I'll be doing a game and he will text me and say, 
this person on television sounds a lot like you. <laughs> and I, I mean, <laughs> he knows exactly what he's doing, but I can't help but laugh. I mean, he is, he's just a phenomenally vivid person. And the things he's been through with the back injury and the darkness that he went through and the stutter slash lisp he grew up with and to become a communicator like he is, I I revere the man. I really do. It's extraordinary to think about this because he had the greatest single game in NCAA tournament history, and it was before you were born. Bill Walsh has now made, and get this, 21 out of 22 field goal attempts tonight. He is one of the greatest basketball players of all time to go along with a soul that is uh, as wandering and meandering as any poet laureates. And I just, I am energized by being around him and I can tell that anybody who knows him well feels the same way. I mean, he is like a charging station for life. Wow. My thanks to HBO, Robin Williams Live on Broadway, Adam Sandler's Tollbooth Willie, Blazing Saddles the Movie, Fox Sports, NBC Sports Chicago, Bally Sports Wisconsin, and NBC Sports for those marvelous highlights. And my thanks as always to the people behind the scenes that helped make this wonderful podcast possible. TJ Reeves for putting us on the map, Will Hatzel for his crafty editing, Nick Tochi for our wonderful graphics, and to our new partner, Last Word on Sports. And to our presenting sponsor, Mr. Duct. You can find them at mrductcleaning.com. Tune in next week for part two with Jason Benetti on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. <laughs>